We may now read together portions of God's words as you will find them first in the book of Genesis chapter 15. The book of Genesis and the 15th chapter. We may now consider together as we shall be enabled words you will find in the second portion of scripture we read together. Romans chapter 4. And we shall read again from the 20th verse. Romans 4 at verse 20. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Abraham's case is brought forward by the apostle to prove the doctrine he had set out at length in the preceding part of this epistle. Namely, the doctrine that uh, a sinner is justified by faith alone. <clears throat> now that doctrine requires much proof. <clears throat> Not because there is any dubiety about it, but because it is the last doctrine that the natural man wishes to believe the last doctrine that he will believe. In the preceding chapter, <coughs> Paul tells us that both Jews and Gentiles are guilty before God. And the law serves the purpose of bringing all in guilty with every mouth stopped in the presence of the Lord. Now as to what is past, man is guilty. As to what is to come, he is unable, utterly unable, to remove his gift or to better his condition in any way. He is brought in gift and by the works of the law no flesh can be justified before God. Lest any should think that this was new teaching, Paul cites both the case of David and the case of Abraham. 
reminding his readers that this was God's dealings with men from the beginning, from the time that man fell and grace was uh, exercised in the world. This was the only way in which a sinner could become accepted of God or acceptable to God. In verse 6 he says, David also, describing the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputed righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. This is the blessed man. The man whose sins are forgiven. Whose iniquities are forgiven. Whose sins are covered. And as an outstanding case of this justification, the apostle goes on to cite the case of Abraham. And in the 13th verse he says, the promise that he should be heir of the world was not given to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The righteousness which God imputes and which is received by faith alone. Now he comes on, in the case of Abraham, to describe the type of faith by which the righteousness of God is received. And he tells us that Abraham received the promise through faith. But he tells us more that the faith by which Abraham received the promise was in degree outstanding. It doesn't mean that the faith by which Abraham received the promise is different in nature to the faith of, um, of other believers. But he tells us that as to degree to measure, it was outstanding. And then he goes into detail concerning this faith. And he sums it up by saying, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, 
he was able also to perform. So for a little this morning we may look at the contrast that are set before us in these words. There is first of all the contrast between faith and unbelief. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. What else did he do? He was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Now that is the basic contrast. But then as the results <coughs> accruing from that contrast, there is this, he didn't stagger. What else did he do? He was strong. Staggering is contrasted with being strong, as faith is contrasted with unbelief. And as he was strong, we are told that he gave glory to God. The faith by which Abraham was strong was a faith that gave glory to God. And then again he tells us why his faith was strong. He was fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Now there is the basic contrast that between faith and unbelief. He staggered not at the promise of God to unbelief. <clears throat> now what is unbelief? It is uh, <clears throat> the refusal of the creature to believe what God does say. It is, to turn it round and look at it from another angle, it is the creature telling God that he is a liar. He that believed not God, or that believes not God, hath made him a liar. That doesn't mean, of course, that the creature's unbelief makes a liar of God actually. But it does mean that the creature is treating God as if he were a liar. He that believed that believes not God makes God a liar. Now it doesn't matter what what refinements 
we may bring into tune this doubt, the fact remains that unbelief is this attitude of mind towards God, the attitude of mind that refuses to credit God, that refuses to believe God, that is not influenced by what God does say. But what the Apostle here brings specially before us is unbelief. As it causes staggering, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. And then he lays it down clearly and plainly that the only reason for staggering at the prophet at the promise of God is unbelief. There is no other reason whatsoever. And when he says he staggered not, he means that he doubted not. He didn't doubt the promise of God through unbelief. He didn't waver. Now we know that he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven to and fro and tossed. Now to and fro means backwards and forwards. Now there are two things in the context which gives us to the clue to the meaning of staggering or of going backwards and forwards. And the two words are against faith and in faith or against hope and in hope who against hope believed in hope against hope and in hope now this was reason enough to stagger something against him and something for him. And that is exactly what causes staggering or what causes going backwards and forwards. Against hope. That was enough in itself to drive him back. In hope was enough to drive him forward. And these two had to be taken into consideration against hope. That is to say, there were certain grounds on which there was no hope. Absolutely none. No hope at all. from a consideration of the natural and the ordinary 
there was no ground whatsoever to hope. To hope as to the fulfillment of God's promise that he should have a son, that in him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And the most final terminology is used concerning this. We know that there is nothing more final among men than death. That is the last word in finality. Hence we say where there's life there's hope. But where there's death, there's no hope. Once death lays his hand upon the creature, that is absolutely final. There's no more that, that anyone can do. There's no more hope. However sick a person may be, as long as there is a spark of life, there is some ground for hope. But once that is gone, once that spark is extinguished, there's no more hope. This is final, absolutely final. Well, that is exactly what the apostle says of Abraham, that his body was now dead. Dead, no hope. As over against that, we read that Abraham hoped in the one who quickeneth the dead. He believed God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as only was the fulfillment of the of the promise improbable it was absolutely impossible and when the improb the improbable merges into the impossible that is the death of hope now there was we say no hope whatever for the fulfillment of the promise on anything that reason could grasp or anything that experience could lay hold of all was dead absolutely dead against hope but there is the term in hope he believed in hope That doesn't mean, of course, that he believed in his own hope. That his own hope was the ground of, of his belief. Oh, no. But the belief which he had in God gave him hope. What God? 
the God who quickeneth the dead, who calleth the things that are not as though they were. No other God could make his case now, but the God who can bring life out of death, the God who is Lord of death, the God who can rebuke death. And not only so, but this God in quickening the, in quickening the dead calleth the things that are not as if they were. Now what are these things? The things that are not. And God is calling them as if as if they were. Well, various explanations have been given of that. But we take it that what is here meant is this. The things that are not and yet are. For, for what, what the Apostle does say actually is this. He calls the he calleth the things not being as being. He calls the things that have not being as having been. Not as if they had, but as having. Now what are the things that have no being yet have been? Well, we take it that the, that, that the Apostle here is directing us to the purpose of God. What hasn't yet come to pass in God's purpose? It hasn't, it is not yet, it hasn't yet been executed, as the, cap, as the Catechism puts it, the execution of God's decrees. It is the execution of the decree that brings into being what God purposed. But then what God purposed is already in being. That is in the purpose of God. It has been in the purpose of God. It has no being in the execution of the purpose as yet, but it has been in God's purpose. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose, his eternal purpose, and what is in that purpose has been in that purpose, although as yet it has not come into, into being in this world. For instance, God's purpose to create man. No man's creation was in the purpose of God, and it had been in the purpose of God. But it didn't have been in this world until God actually created man. It was when he executed his decree, when he put it in effect, that man came into being. 
No God calls the things that haven't yet happened. He calls the things that have not been in the sense of having happened in this life, in this world. He calls them yet as having been in his own purpose. He calls the things not having been as being. And of course it is on that that the faith of Abraham rested. It is to that that the faith of Abraham clung. What did God say? Come and look at the heavens. Look at the stars. Look at the sand on the seashore. So shall thy seed be. But Abraham had no seed, as yet. No, but in the purpose of God, his seed was to be as the sand of the sea. And on this the faith, we say, of Abraham rested. It was on what God was to do. It was on the purpose of God which had not yet been executed. It was on that that he rested. And while there was much to push him back and make him stagger, yet he staggered not through unbelief. Why? He rested his whole weight upon God, the God who quickens the dead and who calls the things that have no being as if they had, uh, as having been. He didn't go, we say, backwards and forwards, wondering today if this was to be so and believing tomorrow that it was to be so then wondering all over again what was going to happen. He staggered now through unbelief. Now we say that it is unbelief alone that is responsible for making one stagger. At least that's what the apostle says here. If he had staggered, he would have staggered through unbelief. No unbelief is related directly to the promise of God. No one can have unbelief, but in the light of what God says. If God hadn't spoken, Unbelief would be impossible. There would be no such thing as unbelief. Whatever else there would be, there certainly would be no unbelief. But unbelief is the sinful attitude of man towards the God who has spoken. And especially towards the God who has promised. God promised Abraham that his seed would be as the stars of the sea. 
as the stars of heaven and as the sand of the sea. God promised this to Abraham. Now, seeing God spoke, Abraham was placed in the position of either believing or not believing. And everyone, of course, is in the same position. When God speaks, man cannot help. It is certainly impossible for him, but to take up an attitude either of faith or of unbelief. There can be no, no neutrality. Man cannot say, it is immaterial to me whether God speaks or not. That itself, of course, is an attitude of unbelief. He must either believe or not believe. Now, uh, we remind ourselves again of the fact that <clears throat> it is the measure of Abraham's faith that is here brought before us. In particular, certainly its nature is brought before us, but it, it is the measure of it. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. What else did he do? He was strong in faith. He not only had faith, but he was strong in faith. And it was the strength of his faith that overcame the power of unbelief and nothing else can overcome unbelief but faith. Now, here we are not told or the special subject under consideration is not the salvation of Abraham. Although it reverts back to that, it is not the salvation of Abraham. Now what about the faith that saves or the faith that justifies? Must it be so strong as that there will be no staggering through unbelief? Is this the only type, or rather the only measure, of faith by which a soul is saved? Now again and again we said, and we repeat, the very nature of faith is that it can come under attack. Now if you go back to the 15th chapter of um, Genesis, we see there that even Abraham's faith was uh, clouded to a degree. 
had had the promise of a son, but then he says to God, What wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And this early years, and of Damascus is my years. Then God repeated the promise. And it is at the repetition of the promise that we read, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for the righteousness. Now we read in the scripture not only of strong faith, but of weak faith as well. Not only of great faith, but of little faith as well. Now we know that faith, however weak, however vacillating it may be, faith is saving faith still. The least degree of saving faith is saving. The least degree of saving faith will bring us all to heaven. Why? Well, first of all, the least degree of saving faith lays hold of Christ. And Christ becomes the righteousness of that soul. So that the one having the least degree of faith is as righteous as the one having the highest degree of faith. Because little faith has Christ for his righteousness. And great faith can have no more. The most trembling believer in the world is as righteous as Abraham was. But while the least degree of saving faith will bring us all to heaven, it won't bring the soul so comfortably or so triumphantly to heaven as a greater measure of faith will. And what is still more, little faith, while it gives glory to God, doesn't give the glory to God that great faith If there is anything plainly written on the page of Scripture, it is this, that there are different degrees of faith. Take Peter, for instance, when he said to the Lord, Ask me to come unto thee walking on the sea. And the Lord said, Come. And Peter came out of the boat and walked on the sea. 
walked on the water. But when he looked and saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and he began to sink. And then his cries, Lord, save me. And the Lord comes, lays hold of Peter and brings him back into the boat. And he says to him, why didst thou fear, O thou of little faith? It wasn't the strength of the wind, or, or the um, tempestuousness of the waves that made Peter sink, or that led him to sink. What then did? It wasn't the wind, neither was it the waves. It was his little face. And it is to that his attention is directed. Oh, thou of little faith. The Lord never said to him, Ah, yes, I know the wind is strong, and that the, the sea is stormy. No, no. He directs attention to this, to his face. Oh, the what little faith. And again and again, we read of degrees of faith. Take again, take again. At the other end, <clears throat> the woman, the Syrophoenician woman, to whom Christ said, Oh, woman, great is thy faith. Be unto you as as thou hast believed. Great is thy faith. There is there are degrees in faith. But to be strong in faith is not to stagger at the promise of God. No one may have faith and stagger, and stagger much. And what he needs in that connection is more faith. Lord, increase our faith. He may stagger, and stagger again and again. Now as to his justification, he may feel his hold of Christ slipping again and again. But it is not his hold of Christ that counts. It is Christ's hold of him. And that grip never slackens. The least degree of saving faith takes Christ unto sinner and the sinner into a relationship that cannot be broken. The sinner may stagger. He may be in doubt. He may be cast out. He may say, I am lost again. All that 
But that is not due to the nature of justification. It is due to the measure of his faith. The measure of his faith. I know we say faith is exercised towards the God who speaks. The God who promises. Now this is a question. To whom are the promises made? You must say to Abraham and to his seed. You must say to the elect of God all, all correct. But that is not the immediate answer. To whom are the promises made? To those who believe them. And to everyone who believes them. See how beautifully the Apostle draws that conclusion and another here. It was written not for his sake only, but for our sake also, to whom it shall be imputed. When and how? If we believe on him that raised up Jesus from the dead. Now hundreds and thousands of people have tormented themselves at this very point, say, is the promise of God made unto me? Is it made, was it not made to such and such a one, or is it not made in such and such a context? Now all that is true, but that is beside the point. A man's immediate reaction to the promise of God ought not to start in heaven above or on the earth beneath, but it ought to start with himself. The question is not, is the promise made to me? That's not the question. The first question is this, do I believe the promise? That's the first question. If you believe it, it is yours. It shall be imputed to us who believe. Do you believe it? Do you really believe it? Do you believe it so as not to stagger through unbelief? At least, do you believe it in such a way as that this is all your hope and all your desire? Do you believe God's promise? Do you believe God when he speaks? That is the question. The promise is made to faith. To all who believe. Who believe with the faith which is the gift of God. Do I believe? 
do I believe God's promise? And when I put the question, I find myself staggering. Certain things against me, certain things for me. Do I believe? Do I not think, well, if I really believed, would I be like this? Would I be like that? A host of questions springing upon the mind. But while that is true, the basic principle is unaffected. Do I believe the promise of God? Do I believe what God says? Now that is far more important than looking into a region in which we can find no answer. Supposing one were to ask this question, well, do I believe? Supposing one were to turn it round and say, well, am I of God's people? Am I of God's elect? No, there's no answer to that question, but by believing. There's no answer to it in heaven above or on the earth beneath, but by believing. How can one know that he is one of God's chosen and purchased ones? By believing. And there's no other way. Absolutely none. And suppose one were to believe it on some other ground. That would be presumption and ignorance. Supposing an angel from heaven were to come to me and say, No, you are one of God's children. <clears throat> I would have no warrant in the world to believe him. But if he said to me, No, you believe in God. I wouldn't need any more warrant. Because I have God's own word there. To us it will be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised up again for our justification. He staggered not against hope. He believed in hope. He believed in God who quickens the dead and calls the things that are not as being. <clears throat> now this is the hope, this is the faith of the gospel. To believe what God the Lord does mean. To believe what he says, as it bears to believe him in all things, but justifying faith as justified, looks unto God, who testifies that he raised up Jesus from the dead, who was delivered from for our offenses, and raised up again for our justification.
And this is God's way of salvation. By the works of the law there shall no flesh be justified. All the world is brought in before God as guilty. They are brought in as guilty before God. But God set him forth. That is set Christ forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Do we believe this? That's the crucial question. Do I believe it? Do I believe God in his testimony concerning his son? If not, I make God a liar. But if I do, heaven and earth will pass away. But God's word, as it bears upon my justification, will not pass away. And this is the hope of the soul, believing that what he promised, he is able also to perform. Let us pray. Oh, blessed one, blessed us thy work. Enabling us rest upon what thou dost declare concerning thyself to rest upon Christ Jesus receiving him alone for salvation oh that thou would teach us this lesson that they just live by faith that they are justified by faith that they are sanctified by faith that they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Take away our sins in Christ. Amen.